0: Head into The Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at The Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out The Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Woolmore. You're listening to Black on the Air, or welcome for the first time. We have Mr. Don Lemon, of CNN fame, who I joked about at the White House Correspondents Dinner many years ago. He was uh, a good sport about that. I think I called him alleged uh, black journalist, <laughs> Don Lemon, something like that. He's a good sport about it. He's got a book out called This is the Fire. What I say to my friends about racism, he was very much motivated by the George Floyd protests and what was happening last year with the protests and everything uh, to write about it. Uh, write about that and racism and his relationship to it and some of his life, a little bit of everything in there. Um, so I'm talking to Don about all of that stuff coming up. We had a good conversation a little earlier, and I think you guys will enjoy it. There's a lot in there. It's the type of conversation. Unfortunately, you know, you could just talk about it for a while because you, you can't just, you can't really cover everything. Uh, I think the way you would like those type of conversations. Ugh. But I'm hoping we can have more of those conversations more and more in the future. And by conversations, I'm a person that really wants to have conversations with people, not monologues, you know, not soliloquies. You know, there needs to be some back and forth, especially these days. I'm not into the, uh, <laughs> how can I put this? Uh, I think, you know what it is? There's a lot of social justice going on right now where, who man. It gets, if, to me, and this is my opinion, it falls into a little bit of the preachy area. Um, preachy instead of teachy, let's just say. So I think we have to be careful of that. Um, there's ways to speak the truth and being authentic and keeping in 100 with it, you know. But people are people. People take things the way they're going to take it. And, oh man, in terms of our relations in the country right now, this whole... I, what is going on with the attack on Asian Americans right now? And I don't know how long this has been going on, uh, this type of thing. I suspect there's been some things that have been going on for a while under the radar. And by radar, I mean like the national mainstream media, but certainly not under the radar in the Asian community. I suspect this late, this attack by this, uh, this guy in Atlanta where you know, is that these uh, massage parlors or whatever. And, you know, they're trying to suss out whether this is a racial attack or, you know, there's some other issues going on. But, you know, even figuring out the nuances of that, there is something definitely going on with this spate of attacks on Asians. And it is crazy. I have no idea where this is coming from right now. Some people are saying it's a direct result of the the way that Trump was going after China in regards to the virus and everything. He was going after China before that, by the way, because he's just a crazy man. It's such a weird thing to me, like the ignorant president does things and so people follow. I just don't get that. I don't get that as a way to behave in the world. There is no president in the world that is just going to do something crazy and I'm going to follow it because he's the president. I just it's so weird to me that people act like that. But I know that it is true that it happens, you know, a lot of the crazy stuff that Trump said either gave people uh either motivated people to do things or it gave cover for people who were going to do some some nefarious shit anyway and did it under that cover. So I I do know that that happens. I'm not saying that I just don't get it as a person as a human being. I don't understand it, man. I just don't get it, you know. But my heart goes out to, you know, the families of those people um, who were shot down. That is really fucked up. I'm really sorry about that. Um, And I hope we learn more about what that situation is. But going forward, I hope whatever is happening out there, the animus towards Asian Americans, that shit has got to stop. And I think we're going to need to be honest about where it's coming from as well, you know. And there's a lot to unpack there, you know? Um So let's all be real in that situation and, you know, keep our ears open and our hearts as much as well. Because I think we got some difficult conversations coming up, y'all. That's what I got to say about that. Um, I'm keeping it short this weekend. It's a tough weekend. Um, I've shared with you the stories about my brother and everything. And, you know, he died on January 30th, and we are finally able to bury him this Monday, March 22nd. That's how long it took. That's Buster, my dog, barking in the background. You know, the number of bodies backed up due to COVID. And so this is, <clears throat> it's a tough weekend for the family. But you know what? I'm not saying this, as I said before, out of a grievance or complaining, because I know it's tough for everybody out there that's going through this. I'm saying it in solidarity with the people that are going through this tough time, knowing that, you know, I feel you, I see you, all that stuff, you know, and it's, you know, it's not easy, but it is, if you can get some kind of closure with some of these things, then it is important to get it. And I will say this too. um, If you're not able to get closure in the traditional way, and truthfully, there never really is complete closure on these things. By closure, we, We kind of say like at least a temporary closure, you know, like a burial service, that sort of thing. But we're in such a weird situation now. If ever there was a year for people to reach out for professional help, this is the year. Mental health, well-being. Even if it's proactive, like if you don't feel like you need something, you might want to go get something anyway, you know, and just reach out and, you know, this could be the year of self-care, that type of thing, and take care of yourself. And the other thing I would say is, is to look out for family members and friends who you may notice may need that type of thing, and in whatever way is the best way to suggest that, Um, you know, without crossing the line, because with some people might be crossing the line. But if you can, if there's a way to do it, man, whew, find a way, because people are going to, I'm telling you, this is. This is one of those things that's coming on its way too is this post uh this PTSD that's happening through COVID and all this stuff. People are going to need help. You know, with all these horrible things that are happening. I want to send out a message. Let's try to be kind to each other. We need some kindness in the world you guys. We need some kindness, all right? Um when I look at how people react sometimes on Twitter, you know, and that sort of thing and some of the reactions to certain things where people are just so geared up to have negative reactions to things. Let's try some kindness out there, you guys, you know, little forgiveness, that type of thing. Uh, give it and seek it. Let's do both, both of those things. That's my message for this weekend. As I said, you know, it's one of those difficult weeks that we're all going through And just wanted to share that with you right now. But speaking of difficult stuff, so we got um, this conversation, like I said, with Don. it's It's one that we haven't figured out, this whole problem with the treatment of Blacks in America, especially at the hands of police. It's been a complicated relationship for a long time. And we get into a little bit of that with Don Lemon. Coming up
0: right after this. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. All right, welcome
1: back, everybody. Uh, my very special buddy who flips me off every time he sees me, <laughs> he is uh, CNN anchor. Everybody knows him and loves him. Don Lemon, out with the, his latest book, you guys, This Is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Congratulations, son, welcome to Black on the Air.
2: Thank you, Larry, thank you, I really appreciate it. It's it's indeed an honor to be on, I'm afraid. This is the only one I've been afraid of. I'm like, what is he gonna what? ask me? Yeah. Because they're so smart, Barry
1: Wilmore. Oh, stop it. I'm talking to Don Lemon, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> I'm just a smart ass. You're actually smart. Lil' James Baldwin, I may have to call now. Lil' James <laughs> Lil <laughs> Lil <baby. laughs> Lil James Baldwin. If you were a rapper, you'd be Lil' Baldwin right now. <laughs> and I say that out of respect. This is the fire, you guys. Don Lemon's on fire in this book, Uh you're coming at it with a little poetry, a little prose, some remembrances, some admonitions. There's so much in here. Uh, there's so what strikes me about it. There's so much passion in here. Don is is that? Uh, why did you feel the need to express yourself in this way? I mean, you really lay it bare. You're really
2: bare in this book. Yeah. Thank you. Honestly, so George Floyd infuriated me, and there were some things that happened before George Floyd. Of course, there were that was Breonna Taylor infuriating. Um, there was, uh, Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia with the shotgun blast killing him on the street while he's jogging. Um, and then, you know, very fine people on both sides. And I had just been sitting there, you know, every night I thought I was getting it off my chest on my show. Just Yeah. Cause it. you're covering it. All right. And then, but when George Floyd happened, I said, you know what, I, I've gotta, I've gotta do this. So many people had asked me to write a book and during the Trump administration, every time that, the orange menace, whatever you want to call him, every time he tweeted about me and did something, somebody would say, You need to write a book, because people a lot of people were profiting off books during the Trump administration. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be that closely associated with him. And then when George Floyd happened, it was just I thought enough was enough. And here I am, a black man in prime time on cable with the platform where the conversation is happening. And I thought that I needed to say something.
1: I felt like if not that I would criticize titles, but I felt like there was a word missing in here, uh, what I say to my white friends about racism. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I said that after and I
2: said, maybe I should have just said what it is, what I say to my white. Yes. Friend. And I
1: can say that. And
2: everyone said, no, you should have said that.
1: Yeah. That's what struck me because I'm reading it and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. It's like a friend is talking to me and He's getting ready to talk to somebody is what I get from this book. I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah, say that, man. Tell him that. Tell him that, too. <laughs> Don't forget that, Don. That's right. Oh, yeah. remember. Yeah, go back that far and yeah. start with that. There you go, Don. Okay, well, go tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking to my black
2: friends, too, then, because they're yes, like, you oh, are. yeah, this is right. Yeah, you, can, you should say this. You should say this. That's right. But if you read the New York Times review, which, I, Larry, I was floored. You've written books uh-huh. before. I was yes. floored by the New York Times review. And the New oh, York yeah. Times said exactly what you said, that black people would read it and go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that. And that right. white people would read it and go, oh, yeah. Oh what? My gosh, what? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, you're right. But you do
1: have history in there that even many blacks don't know too, and I appreciate that. You know, you do go back, you know, and you touch on certain milestones and that sort of thing. But was the book set? Uh, and I mentioned James Baldwin. I mean, you give uh, homage to him in a couple of different ways. You,
2: yes, oh, there you go. And this is one of my original copies. This one is from the '90s. Wow. have an older one that I lost. That got so ripped up from the 80s. So I would look. You see the notes. Don
1: is Don is showing me for you people that are listening. Don is showing me his copy of the fire next. And and look, like the title is like. I
2: know you were really reading that book. Oh, I I read this book at at least twice, maybe three times a year. Still read it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about Baldwin first, since since we're there, Uh, because you do connect with him in the beginning of the book stylistically and that kind of thing. You know, even the name,
2: the fire next time. This is the fire, right?
1: Exactly, and I want to ask you about that too. And it's interesting because he starts off that book with a letter to his nephew, um, I believe. Which, and at that time, what's fascinating is that. Oh, by we could do a, a, two
2: hours on Baldwin, by the Baldwin. way. What was fascinating was the hundred year anniversary. I think this is where you're going of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said he started by saying, "We're celebrating it a hundred years too soon."
1: Yes, we're celebrating a hundred years of freedom a hundred years too soon, and that struck me because. Now your book shows up and it's like almost 60 years after he wrote that book. I mean, think about that. So it's like, fuck, Jay, how smart was James Baldwin? I mean, he's right. We're still fighting these fights.
2: Yeah. We are. But look, I don't know if you've, the last time you read the book, but instead of reading it, I'm just going to, I'm just, I implore you, okay, to take an afternoon, if you're out walking, jogging, flying, whatever, yeah. and just listen to it. Just listen in your head and you will be like, wow, this, oh my gosh, this man is so brilliant because... Oh yeah, no, I'm a big Baldwin is,
1: fan. Yeah. yeah,
2: it's like it's like listening to, you know, the What's Going On album from Marvin Gaye. Yeah. You're like, oh my gosh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, but yes, what's happening, you know, when he wrote it almost 60 years ago is exactly the same thing that's happening now. And we we'd like to think that we've made so much progress. And listen, I think you know this. I was sort of lulled into this whole maybe fantasy that we were um, not post-racial America, but that things had actually gotten a whole lot better. And then I, I think I had a spiritual awakening, epiphany over the, the Trump administration. I think the Trump administration, for me, I think honed me into a fine diamond because I'm like, this is some bullshit. And, um, you know, I write in a book about, I hate to say that he was the president that we needed because he pulled a wall off of our eyes he he and 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 he pulled the covers back and we were able to see just where the bigots are how many of them there are they're not just hiding in some you know far off rural place in America that they are actually in suits and many of them uh, are lawmakers who are leading this country and so that's you mm-hmm. know that's where i am on that
1: we bring up an interesting point because you know in Baldwin's time of course there was actual institutional barriers to blacks that were very apparent, you know, couldn't, you know, segregation was still there. You know, there were laws that needed to be overturned.
2: Larry, they're trying to do that now with voter suppression.
1: Right. Exactly. But I mean, at the time it, it yeah. was there in place. Yeah. I mean, it's like you, the, the number of laws and barriers to blacks were much more visible and, and have been in society for a long time. The Jim Crow legislation, all that kind of stuff. And, and white People as a group had never really heard a voice like that and all the voices that appeared at that time. But it's interesting that people have heard this for a long time. But do you think things got worse under Trump or that people became more aware of things during Trump? Or, or the people that maybe had some of this animus
2: felt emboldened by Trump? All three. I think I do actually think it got worse because he exploited the divisions. And people, the racism, the homophobia, the xenophobia, the whatever, the anti-Semitism, he exploited that. And in that exploitation, he actually made it worse. But also by exploiting it, he also gave um, um, awareness to it. Right. He made folks aware of the people who are out there. So there were people who felt I said that he was um, the greatest imprimatur for uh, bigots. He was the bigot imprimatur. So he gave them license and and credibility and um, and visibility. So he made them more visible. He made them angrier. He separated us. So and and so I think in that making it worse, and in that visibility, that those are tools now for the people who don't believe those things and don't want those things to be true and wants to get rid of that element in society. I think it was it's it's a call to action. To us, those who who are like that, who are not like the bigots, I think it's a call to action. So I think that visibility, yes, and he made it worse, but I think it's a good thing. I know it sounds weird that he did because because it lulled us out of our out of out of our complacency. Not lulled us; it shocked us out of our complacency. I said, "Sure, that yeah."
1: Um, I have some different things about the better and worse. I think, and this sounds weird. I think it got better. And in some ways it did get worse, you know, ironically, um, but because uh, the world was different when I was a child. And I wanted to ask you about uh, growing up in Louisiana, which is where you're from. What When did you first become aware of like race and those issues a- as a child growing up in Louisiana and how what was the situation like? in the South at that time when you were a kid, as far as you could tell from your perspective?
2: As far as I can uh, mm-hmm. remember, I was always aware of it. And I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the, because there were physical barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I lived on this main street called Court Street in Louisiana mm-hmm. and the white people lived on one side and the black people lived on the other side. So it was still, it was segregated in that way. segregated in that mm-hmm. way. And then there was also, uh, and then perpendicular to that, there was also, I think it was Highway 1, and for the most part, the whites lived on one side and the blacks lived on the other side as well. Did you have, did you have white friends growing up? Not until we moved to um, a, an integrated neighborhood when I guess maybe, you know, I was seven years old or eight years old. We moved to an integrated neighborhood and then I began to get white, have white friends. But then that also made me more aware because the white parents would come home from work and I would be playing with their kids in their front yard or in their backyard. And there would be this, hey, Billy, come in the house now. <laughs> where you were, where you were kind of that first generation of that yeah. type of thing happening like yeah. that right and it's interesting yeah. because i you know i talked to some friends in louisiana now and they said well, well you know the white people weren't that racist when we were kids we were just kind of used to it because that's a, that's what it was and those you know, they were good white folks you know what i mean um and i i understand that because i felt and thought the same thing but you know Yeah, there's
1: cognitive dissonance to that. No, that is a very interesting point, Donna, is that here's what's hard for people to understand. Because racism was a given, you actually could have nice people who, you know, enjoyed the givenness of racism, you know, or whatever. It -hmm. could be very nice to you, but there was still that thing. And it's like, well, how can those two things exist? And you also had people who were more, you know, hate was driving them, you know, mm-hmm. like people in the Klan and that sort of thing. But it's hard for people to understand that that other type of white person actually existed. And then there was another type that didn't want to stand for that and were actively involved in helping to change that, you yeah. know, but, but it's was, that it's that middle one that's hard for people to understand, you know.
2: It was that, that, like, you know, when when mom and dad came home and Billy all of a sudden disappeared and you're like, okay, Billy's in the hospital <laughs> now. Or <laughs> all of a sudden, Billy didn't live there anymore. You're like, well, what exactly. happened? Exactly. They right.
1: moved. Or if you date Billy's sister, if you try to date Billy's sister. <laughs> it's it's gone. Or for me, or it, Billy. If <laughs> you try to date Billy, I beat you to it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. And then Billy's like, yeah, I'm having fun. I'm gonna stay here. And the parents are like, No, we're moving. No I'm kidding. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's another issue. I mean, being a gay black man in the South, you know, during yeah. that time. Talk about another intersection with Baldwin, you that's, know. You just took the words out of my mouth.
2: That's why I was so drawn. It was so, and that's why his work was, well, not, I think his work was compelling to me because he's just a fantastic writer and, and he was um, a revolutionary, right? And that appealed to me, but also him being a gay black man and me starting to read him late in high school, early college, um, it it helped me to deal with my, coming I mean, to terms with my sexuality and also being a black man from the South. I mean, he's from Harlem, but he's still was speaking for all of us. So, yeah.
1: Uh, can I ask you about that? Did, when is, uh, I'm, I'm going on as if you
2: said yes, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, did you re- you know, Giovanni's room, right? Uh, by James Baldwin. Yes. Epic. And so that was actually the actual first book I had. Now this is really weird. I was in, it was, like, that was my, Freshman year in college. So, right. So I started reading Baldwin my freshman year in college when actually a white boyfriend, my first whatever, you know, hidden boyfriend gave me Giovanni's Room. And also I think the Front Runner, which was about um, a marathon runner who was gay. And so I saw these two books on his shelf and um, I started reading it and I read Baldwin and then I read Giovanni's Room and then I picked up the fire next time and then I read the entire Baldwin canon. I was going to ask, when did
1: you first know that you were gay, that there was something different about you than what you thought maybe you were supposed to be? I'll put it like that.
2: Whenever I'm saying
1: that from a society point of view, you
2: know, whenever I knew that there was a difference between little boys and little girls and it wasn't sexual. Mm -hmm. I I can't really explain it as a child. You always knew that you were um, somehow different. Like I always like, enjoyed like i love hanging out i loved all kids but i love like um my male friends and it wasn't again it wasn't sexual it wasn't an attraction but i always i always thought like oh i just want a brother i'm the only boy maybe that's it because there are no boys in my family and then as i got older i was like well you know you know johnny at you know at 14 like johnny's kind of cute like this is kind of weird like i don't know but i think i've always had um i've always known um but i I can't really explain that as a child, it wasn't really sexual, but it was just something that you knew. It was, a, it was, a, it was a knowing, um, like little boys knew they were little boys and little girls knew that they were little girls. And I mean, some kids I would imagine for them that they know that they're heterosexual, but, um, and then maybe some people just don't know until they start puberty or what have you. But I always knew. Always. Did you, uh,
1: was it tough to, Express that to your family at that time and everything. How, I didn't. That? I did
2: really express it. I mm-hmm. kept it hidden forever. Um, and I did not even, you know, even when I was in college, the early years of college before I moved to New York, I, you know, I would have secret, right, you know, relationships, right, or it was just friends or roommates, right. And then uh, once I moved to New York, it was like. Ooh, great. it's party time
1: (laughs) yeah that's so funny
2: but you know in new york you can be and do whoever you want to be and that was that was amazing um that was amazing to me and uh, and yeah ironically in new york there's
1: more license for the gay part of you than the black part of you probably (laughs) either which
2: is ironic well because i moved from louisiana in large part to escape racism right yes a college professor that told me i wasn't going to make it as a journalist but you know i was like okay well she's actually worse on camera than i am but you're always looking at her boobs right or, <laughs> or you're always like coddling that kid or the white guy over there saying oh yeah you're gonna be a great sportscaster and i'm like this guy's horrible so um that was in part because of that. And also just in part, least, you know, I got tired of people saying the N-word openly and, and those kinds of things. And I thought if I ever wanted to achieve what I want to achieve, I was going to have to leave Louisiana. But in my first foray here, when I was trying to get an apartment, and I was like, why can't I find an apartment? And uh, so I stopped putting black in the this was like the village voice, and you would put sure, sure, sure. it. And then I stopped putting it in and then I showed up at someone's door and I was like, I need a roommate. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to live with a black guy. And I'm like, oh, okay." And so finally, I did end up finding someone where I could sublet in a room in their apartment in um, Astoria, Queens. But it took a long time for me to find a roommate because no one wanted to live with a black guy.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that this is when I was going to ask you, uh, like, why is it so hard to explain, you know, the racial problems that blacks have had in America? But I love. I don't love that story because it happened naturally, you know, but, <laughs> but it's good that you point that out that that happened in New York City. Yeah. You know, that this is supposed to be, this is the North, first of all, you know, this is New York City, it's supposed to be progressive and all this. And you have to face that in New York City, not in the 1930s, you know. <laughs> this was the 1990s. Yeah. So, why don't people understand this, Don? Why why is it so hard to explain this to people that this type of thing goes on?
2: It was interesting because I found even though the South had a sort of more openly, obviously oppressive racism, but black and white people actually spent actually more actually spent more time with each other on, on a personal level than they did up north because the racism was hidden and more cunning and uh, a little bit more cerebral, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Blacks are always in the white homes in the South,
1: you know, as right. domestic workers and that sort of thing, going back to, you know, slavery right. And, and in
2: and, and, and the South, it has a lot to do, it's more socioeconomic, and even up North, because poor Blacks and poor whites in the South kind of live in the same neighborhood. Poor Blacks in up North in a city like New York mostly live, all Black people live in one neighborhood, right? And poor whites usually live in the suburbs somewhere, in a poor section of the suburbs. At least that's how it, it used to be. And it still is that way for um, um, a, a large part.
1: And New York but, usually had its immigrant classes in the poor neighborhoods in Manhattan. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, but I find that now that New York City is very polarized. And cities that I've lived in Chicago, very polarized. Um, oh, yeah. New York City, very polarized. St. Louis, Missouri, same thing in uh, every sort of every major city that I've lived in and even in Atlanta there's a little bit more integration in Atlanta but still there's a polarization there I mean I live in Chicago and people thought like Chicago my gosh it's a very very you know diverse yeah, my, city my parents I was the there. only black person besides the doorman in my building because I wanted to live in this Mies van der Roe building because I love architecture and then I moved in right. and I'm like where are the black folks <laughs> <laughs> I bought it I you know you know the, yeah. the job gives you like a weekend trip to find a place And I did that and I had no idea. I should have done more research and there I was in this building I wanted to live in, but I was the only one to look like me. But, um, so I I find that up North, it's actually, people don't mingle as much between races, at least on a personal level, maybe on a professional level they do, but not in their personal lives.
0: Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health
1: I think people living together and, and having to get along is a big part of it but then we have the other part, you know, the institutional stuff. Well, what's the big barriers right now? Is it more of the commingling type of thing that you're talking about?
2: Well, I think the barrier is that for me, I know it sounds, you know, it's very simplistic. I think people just don't know each other. I think that I always say that we need to um find a black friend or a white friend or a latino friend or an asian friend or friends uh, and we need to get to know people who are not like us because it when you see someone else's humanity and you experience someone else's humanity, it's hard to degrade them. It's hard to dehumanize them. And it's it's harder, it doesn't mean that you can't to discriminate against them. Um and so I think that's a big part of it. But um I also think it's the which I write about it, the sort of mashed potato racism that we swallow until we realize that there's glass in it. I think it's obvious that some people, especially in this political climate, it, obviously we see that they are racist, but I think it's kind of hard sometimes for liberals to see the, their own
1: racism. The soft bigotry of low expectations it's with uh, George Bush. I agreed with him when he said that, by the way.
2: Yeah, but I see that happens a lot with uh, progressives and liberals and many times, especially in business, that they don't really see their own racial blind spots. <laughs> I think that is the biggest hindrance. I think everyone should, um, so I wish there was like a universal class that everyone could take to see their own their own biases, their own unconscious bias.
1: No, you bring up a really good point. This is a point I've tried to make as much as possible too, where I like to take it out of the political realm because I think the political realm is too, com- it, it's too confusing. It's too binary in some places. They're, I agree. You know, to make racism about politics, you know, um, it's got to be taken out of that. Certainly, some racist things happen within politics, but it's hard to understand when people look at it that way. Because you're absolutely right, racism did not choose to be on the right or the left. You right, know, right. it's it's all through that and in the middle as well. You know, right. because it doesn't really have a political affiliation. Um, and I believe right now there are a lot of things that are more, I think, our right left differences than our racial differences, but they're put out there as racial differences there are cultural issues that are because blacks are sometimes on that cultural side of a more conservative side sometimes even though many times they'll vote you know blacks are very um,
2: conservative so,
1: yeah very much so as a group you know church going you know like my family uh my sisters and brothers <laughs> well yeah my brother but I'll, I just lost my brother but uh you know they're very conservative over there socially and everything. You know, even though you know they vote uh, Democratic and that that type of thing, like they're like a lot of the stuff I do in showbiz, they would not even watch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and Don, uh, I don't even bring it up. Some of this stuff, you know, but they support me and everything.
2: Try telling black family that you're gay. Like, you're
1: like no, Don, you're. <laughs> you, we're, this is truth here, you know, and it's and there are some things that are overlapping that are not necessarily. Uh, racial so much as cultural, like that's a big divide right now. And I wonder where, you know, if that's the thing that is that is facing us more than anything right now, the moment that we're in. Certainly, but let me go back to the racial thing, because I want to talk about the George Floyd moment first, you know, um, because that struck a nerve like nothing since the Rodney King thing in my lifetime to really have people open their eyes to the treatment of blacks by the police in this country, you know. Um, and why do you think that was so different,
2: uh, the George Floyd moment? Because you couldn't avoid it. I mean, you couldn't avoid Rodney King because Rodney King was the beginning of um, this sort of uh, the, the video era, right? That was caught on videotape and you could see it. But then, you know, that was also the beginning of people trying to uh, trying to reckon with, well, is it, you know, where did they pick up the recording? And maybe there was some reason that they were beating him that much. Because he was speeding and he was running away from police officers. Well, I and mean, there's always an excuse, right? Maybe he was asking for it. Maybe he was, yeah, maybe he was asking <laughs> to be hit a million times, <laughs> right. right? And suffer brain damage and all that. But I, I think it was um, we the similar moment, and you're right, was George Floyd because I think it resonated in large part because we saw someone with his knee on a man's neck for almost nine minutes and you couldn't take your eyes off of it. But because we, the world, Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And nobody even knew what was happening in the moment because we're all sitting at home in quarantine in the middle of a deadly pandemic, a generational pandemic, um, where everyone was either watching it on the television or on one of these devices because you had nowhere to go. You couldn't leave your house. And if you left your house, you couldn't go far. You couldn't go to the restaurant. You couldn't go to work. You didn't know, many people didn't know um, where their next meal was coming from, if they'd be able to pay their rent or what have you they were going to have a job, if they were going to survive COVID or if their family members were going to get COVID, if they were like, everyone was at home, open and vulnerable all Mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. And that's, and then while we're going through that there, you see this man dying on television. And so everybody was kind of at home crying, saying, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. And you had, um, Black mothers who were saying, there but for the grace of God goes my son or my nephew or, some black, or my husband or some black man that I know. And then you had white moms saying, I don't want my kid to grow up in a world like that. I would never want to have, I, I would never want to have that happen. But also, I don't want my kid to see this because I don't want to see it. And so everyone was trying to, and, and there was no way of saying, which many people say, oh, that doesn't happen. You're exaggerating. There it is right on your screen. And while you're saying and trying to go jump through all of these mental hoops, it, uh, eight minutes, almost nine minutes, that's a long time for you and where you just have to say, OK, it's happening. And it's all. Yeah.
1: Awesome. I, I think it pointed out a distinction between sympathy and empathy. You know, I think uh, for a while, you know, people like a lot of people ran out of sympathy, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> but you never run out of empathy. No. ever. You know, and I think because as you point out, people were vulnerable, empathy was had during that moment. You know, yes. it was it was unmistakable, and empathy causes a completely different reaction. And how many times people. did you
2: talk to that video? How many times were you like, Come on, man, just yeah. take you." and you're thinking, even though you know it, it's done. It was tragic. Yeah, you're saying, was you're sad. like, come on, all right, fine enough. All right, we get it. Like, take your knee off the guy's neck, you're going to kill him. Even when you knew that it was videotape and he wasn't, you're like, bruh, come on. And he didn't do it. And so everyone was feeling that. And you're right, that empathy. And I felt
1: that I remember as you were saying that the Philando Castillo video popped in my head. And I when I was thinking, don't shoot him. No, don't shoot him. He's he's it's OK for him to have that gun. You know, like that's going through my head as I'm right. watching that, you know, yeah. that and, 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 with,
2: and with Amar Arbor, You're like, OK, the guy's jogging like he I doesn't know. he's not carrying anything. He's wearing shorts and no, like a T-shirt, like you don't have to shoot him for, because he went to look at someone's property. Like don't shoot. Oh my gosh. It shot him in the stomach with a shotgun. It's, and it's just, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. So that really does You're absolute, it, that really was a turning point. And so then it becomes a, you know, there's all that expression that happened last summer, you know, globally and everything. But then it becomes, and and I'm sure this part of your job too, of looking at it. Okay, what's to come of this, right? What what happens now? You know, truth
2: truth has to come of it. It's got to be the truth. When you ask me, when you ask me, what do we do? It's got to be the truth. We have to start teaching the real history of this country, Larry. Because then you then maybe people won't grow up to be like um, the cop in Minneapolis or the guys with the shotgun or the police officer who shot Orlando Castillo or the people who. Um, tried to take over the Capitol, tried to overturn an election, because then you you deal with life through truth and reality. You don't think that Christopher Columbus discovered America, right? You understand that Christopher Columbus conquered America. Um, You you don't think that the, the folks who came over on the Mayflower or the immigrants who came over after African people, uh, should be the, those who are celebrated more than the Africans who came over before the Mayflower or to help build a country for free. You get an understanding of the full history and the richness of everyone who helped to build this country. And it wasn't just your people. So a lot of those people are operating on a lie, on things that, and on ignorance that was not taught to them. And whose fault is that? It's our own fault because we need to fight for all of history, as I try to give you some in this short book all history to be taught in this country at a very young age and not just the history that elevates some and denigrates others. That makes some people look better, which is the white supremacist part of it. And then others look bad. It's, listen, I've come to the wreck. I really, I, I'm okay. I shouldn't say I'm okay. I have come to accept that my ancestors were slaves in this country. I know the horrible things that they had to deal with but it's all part but they were also people who built this country and who are just as american and sometimes i think even more american if that if there is a thing than others and it gives me pride because we survived and i think all of that needs to be taught and then people won't be operating out of a place of ignorance do you feel uh this
1: book is your attempt to start that conversation with some people like who 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 are you directing this book towards in in My terms of what you're, yeah <laughs> <laughs> your, no, see, but it's your friends you're already in conversation with. Today. But what about people that aren't Don's friends? How do you how do you get this message across to
2: to non Don friends? It's kind of weird when you're writing things like I'm I'm some sort of speaking to everyone, but as you know, there's a certain audience, and the audience, quite honestly, that I think will make make change are white young white mothers, and perhaps they will be able to reach their husbands somehow either directly or through their children because um you know men have this sort of bravado and you know they you can't tell them anything and they have this especially since the trump era, you see this whole sort of attraction to this father figure this fake masculinity right uh and i I don't think women have that i think most for the most part women are empathetic in nature and they will read this, and they will want their children to read this, and they will—they want to have the vocabulary to be able to um, guide their children through this and to start conversations with their children. So that's—that's that's the audience that I sort of was. The audience in my head was mm-hmm. that woman who could could reach all of those
1: people. Well, it's interesting because whites have have been involved in the civil rights movement for a long time. You know, been allies in it and everything. Do you think? Do you have a sense that some of that has Gone away, or that it needs to be
2: redefined, or something? Uh, the allyship. Well, I do think it needs to be redefined. And I did something on my podcast where I talked about um, the sort of rift now between um, African Americans and Jewish people. When we mm-hmm. had, we used to have this very strong alliance. Sure. And, you, know, you know, I just joined the Black Jewish Alliance group. Right. The, yeah, and, and I think that so I'm interested to, in that. Yeah. yeah, we need to. Mm-hmm. We need to bring back that alliance. We need to make it stronger. I agree. Um, and repair that and make it stronger. Um, and um I, I do think that there are ways to fix it. And I think this in this book, I try to speak to that. I don't, I don't, you know, it's I don't give sort of a a direct response to that, but I think through the, the audience that I had in my head that you can reach those people in that way. But I just think that people have become so busy and we've become so divided, especially politically. Um, on purpose, intentionally, other people have done it intentionally, um, that I think that's that's why it's gotten worse. I know that you, I, I agree with you, we shouldn't look at it through a political lens, but it's so hard not to, because that's what people are using to stay in power and to uh, to divide us. They're exploiting that division in order to stay in power. Mm-hmm. Why,
1: why do you think this rift has occurred in the Black-Jewish relationship, at least on the
2: political uh, realm of it I, I don't really i don't really know i think that i think that as time as so much time goes by okay here's what i'll tell you i think that the, we had that alliance because um black people and jewish people were similar socioeconomically maybe back in the 30s 40s 50s and 60s And then I forget the gentleman's name who who writes about this. And he said, over time, Jewish people, because of how they look, have been able to assimilate. And if you're a black person, you can't really assimilate. And so um, I think that, you know, Jewish people assimilated, became richer and more accepted in society. And that has not happened for African-Americans simply because of the color of skin. Um, But I don't really know enough about it to speak on it intelligently enough to To give you a definitive answer about it, but I do think that's part of it. I mean, you know, you don't know who's Jewish and who's not for the most part, um, unless someone tells you. You know what I mean? And so, but black people, there's it's different. It's the same thing with gay people. You don't really know who's gay unless somebody tells you. <laughs> I mean, you can you can you can as one can assume, you know, if someone is effeminate or you know if you're walking around holding hands with a guy, but pretty much or a girl. But pretty much you can't tell. And I think you can't do that when you're African-American. People see Mm -hmm. you coming. Um, Let's talk about the police part of this, because
1: the George Floyd uh, not only, you know, exposed, you know, some of the racial problems in this country, but directly the relationship between blacks and the police. We're not talking about sitting at a lunch counter or, or voting when we're watching that. We're looking at a relationship, you know, between black and police, you know, Where are we going with this, Don? Like, what is the, do you have a point of view about how do we repair this? Because there are many blacks in police departments, many chiefs of police that are blacks, you know, black mayors, that sort of thing. Like, there's been a lot of, you know, of quote unquote reform work and that sort of thing. Like, what is the the way to make this better, you know? Or do you have a point of view on that? And. And we could could talk about defund the police and that sort of thing. I do, but I
2: I don't think police officers or or police departments should have to solve every ill in every community. And I think that's how we use them. So, you know, I'm not saying that's defund the police, but certainly we need to uh, redefine um, what policing is in this country. I'm not saying get rid of police at all, but some police officers are probably not qualified to deal with mental health issues. Some police officers are probably not qualified to deal with issues of Um, of racism in communities that's just not they're not psychologists they're supposed to be peace officers they're supposed to keep the peace they're supposed to de-escalate situations and i think that we have um we have become used to and i think people like it because then they don't have to deal with it um police officers becoming occupiers right and people in, in communities feel like they're they they live in a place where where um police officers are the overseers and instead of there to keep the peace, and police officers are trying to solve every single ill of every single neighborhood, and they're just not—they're just not equipped to do that. And until we figure that out, I mean, I think Ros Baraka in Newark is doing a, a, a pretty good job of it, trying to overhaul this police department. But I do think police departments around the country need um, to need need to be majorly overhauled. And I, again, I'm not an expert on that. I say in the book, I don't have all the answers, but I do know. Policing is not one size fits all. And that's how we see police officers in this country.
1: And the reason I'm asking this, like, is it the mechanics of policing? Because the, you know, the George Floyd thing, you know, that was a call about, you know, passing a counterfeit bill, which certainly is a police issue. You know, um, it wasn't a mental health call, you know, and uh, you know, this incident happened as they're, you know, he's trying to arrest
2: him or whatever. So, You don't need to die for passing a $20 bill.
1: No, exactly. But I'm saying, but the police, they were right to call the police is what I'm saying for that type of issue, you know? So like that doesn't have to do with that other issue about police are doing things they shouldn't be doing. The thing they shouldn't be doing is killing unarmed black people. (laughs) Like that's the thing they shouldn't be doing. It's like, how do we get to that? Because let's say they don't go on the mental health calls. They don't do that. But they're still you know, can pull someone over for speeding and what happens in this relationship? You know, like, like, how do we get to that? Like once they stop, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to your house for the mental health call. Okay. I'm not going to there. We've scaled back. You defunded us. Okay. But I'm still being called for this and we're still going to interact.
2: So what's your question? How, how, how do, you, do we,
1: how do we change the nature of that interaction?
2: Oh God, that, that is an education. That's going to be, that's more than just in policing. Again, that's. That right. from that comes from nursery school and grade school. <laughs> that that goes back to the whole idea of seeing somebody else's humanity. Right. That goes that goes back to understanding that interactions with police officers are very rarely positive. And I don't mean that in you know that someone gets beaten up, but usually when a police officer is when you have an encounter with a police officer it's because you're they suspect that you're doing something wrong. They they need to somehow realize that. Nobody wants to be caught or, sit or, or accused of doing something wrong, whether it's a traffic ticket or you're jaywalking or you're, you know, stealing a, a, a candy bar from a store because you're hungry.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, I would say the benefit that white people always get
1: and that they don't mind getting is the benefit of the doubt, right? And but, it, but,
2: but, but whites also feel like the police, are, that the police are there to protect them. Right. And where does that come from? That comes from something that goes... That's something that happens in our psyche and something that's programmed into us long before we have an encounter with a police officer.
1: And it's interesting in this uh, shooting that I know you've covered, you've been very passionate about the shooting at the massage parlor uh, of this uh, guy, this 21-year-old white guy who you could see that the police officer reporting on this has empathy for this guy. He had a bad day. Yes. And like to me, because this is now it's not white and black, you know, it, but I, I wonder if this incident can point out to people what this benefit of the doubt looks like, you know, like, like taking that killer, the guy who killed all the black people in the church, taking him to Burger King, you know, afterwards, that sort of thing. Do you think this will have, this will have uh, a bit of an impact because it's not a white black issue? No, it's, the the uh,
2: whole thing, everything that we're talking about, Larry, is, is. Awareness and it's right. a self-awareness as well, because the excuse is always that wasn't my intention. And, and okay, right. that that's a legitimate excuse sure. sometimes, but not every time. And so the officer that you're talking about, the spokesperson who said um that it was a bad day, he's like, "Look, it was in my, in no way that I intend to blah blah blah." Of course, you sure. didn't
1: intend. Right. That's not the issue. But you're not aware. That yes, exactly. That's you're the not, whole point. That's it's, the whole point that you're yeah. not aware of that. Exactly. And, yeah.
2: So. Yeah. Look, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a teacher, but no, I know. But it's a
1: really good point because many people, I th- here's what maybe we have to do. Don, we'll start this conversation now, you know, is that is I think there's too much focus maybe on intentional racism where it's like these extreme racists, I'll say, you know, like the Jews will not replace us people. We know those, those are assholes, whatever. But there's this, this unconscious, subconscious type of behavior that. Unintentional racism. Exactly. You yeah. know, and trying to get to the, the root of this thing. like
2: Because when you see for him, he had a bad day. Right. For George Floyd. And he related
1: to it. The way he, he talked to he us related, about that, related you, to you it, but can also, see he related to it.
2: But also his social media posts, allegedly, right? they say that. Uh, with the China, Co- you know, COVID. I don't know right. if you saw that, right? The no, I didn't see it. Like, get no. your t-shirt or get your hat. I forget, yeah. whatever it is. And he had CHY-NA on it. Um, like China virus or that sort of thing. And so, you know, you have the person who's a spokesperson for the police officer who's accused of putting out this racist material on his social media and selling T-shirts <laughs> saying China virus, who is now empathizing with the white kid who says, oh, I had a sex addiction. That's why I killed all these Asian women. So, but then you have the, the folks who say, well, why George Floyd? Well, he was violent, He should have complied. Violent should complied." and blah, blah, blah. blah. Why, why wasn't George Floyd having a bad day? Because certainly he ended up having a bad day. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: He was very, you could see there was something else. It's heartbreaking to watch that video, the whole George Floyd thing, because He's he crying looks for like his mama.
2: I start by thinking, I heard a dying
1: man cry for his yeah. mama.
2: And when yeah. you're a grown ass man crying for your mama,
1: I mean. He was in a lot of distress, a lot yeah. of distress. It looked like emotional and psychological it was really sad yeah but i also
2: write about that too um where again and Mm -hmm. and, i guess it'll be the follow-up maybe you're you're giving me some interesting things to think about is this sort of paranoia that Mm -hmm. black americans live in especially black Mm -hmm. men yeah it really came out in his behavior yeah where where i equate it to um you know it's like a race ready set go Mm -hmm. um where black people sort of live again especially black men in the set part of it like you're like ready and then you're like you're like on edge. <laughs> and I'm looking around like, Oh my God, I don't know what's going to pop off. And then some, sometimes things do pop off and sometimes they don't, and you think they're going to pop off. So you live in this constant state of, of sort of this paranoiac state about what's going to happen. Um, do I belong here? Is someone going to uh, think that I don't belong here? They're going to call the cops on me when the cops do show up. Even if they're stopping me for a traffic ticket, are they going to abuse me? You know, is my boss, um, does my boss think I can do the job? Is he going to look over me over, you know, for somebody else who's not as qualified? I mean, all of this, this constant paranoia that goes along with being a black person in America that white people don't have to think about case in point, my own partner, who's a white guy. I wasn't going to put that part in the book where I had this encounter in, you know, my sort of, um, elite neighborhood in Long Island, um, and I said, "No, it's too privileged. I don't know if I want to put that in there." And it turns out being the one, the one thing, or not the one thing, but one of the things that white people who read the book relate to the most wow. because they never have to think about that. It's not. It's not about. It's not something that happens to just poor black people or urban people. Black people who live in urban areas and the social economics don't matter. You can be a wealthy black person and still live with that paranoia. And still have people judge you on your skin color, regardless of how high you rise in society. Economic. Yeah.
1: Well, you say this is the fire. What what part of what part
2: of what we're living in is the fire right now? As James Baldwin, as he writes in this book, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. So, you know, if you look at it in a religious sense, right, that God gives us all of these, um, chances right he's like okay so i'm gonna flood the earth you get rid of this stuff i'm gonna put some people on the ark you're gonna be saved and then you're gonna and some animals and you'll be able to save the earth if you but when you're hoping that on the other side that they're gonna do it right that time and then so the earth the water recedes and you know noah and the, and the folks who are um the the two animals and the men and women they move on and they start the earth all over again, right? And then they do it wrong. And then we do it wrong again. So it was the water last time. This time it's gonna be the fire. And I look upon that as the civil rights movement, the end of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, the civil rights movement, the end of Jim Crow, and all of those things, affirmative action, blah, 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 whatever. And we still don't do it right. Then you have people who are dying on the streets uh, in front of our very eyes. You've got the Rodney King, didn't die, but I think he eventually did die from that because it messed him up so much. That's how I feel. Um, so I believe that we are the fire that God talked about this time. This is it, and I think if we don't get it right now, but when it comes to race, and I think the fire that James Baldwin talked about, this is it. When you, George Floyd was it, that was it inspired um, so much pain in so many people that I believed. And I believe now that we're in the middle of the fire, especially when you have people in 2021, in a modern day world, trying to overthrow the government and the biggest democracy in the world, that we're in the middle of the fire. And if we don't put out this raging fire now, then we're doomed. As I said in the book, when I wrote about the dog in Central Park with Christian and Amy Cooper, that someday, if we didn't fix it, someone is going to come back with a bigger dog. So we had that. We had George Floyd. We had the next big dog was the lie about the election was stolen. And the next one was the insurrection on the Capitol. What is the next one going to be? Is it going to be racist marching in the middle of the street, martial law, taking over the country, actually overthrowing the government? That's why I believe we're in the fire right now.
1: Are you a hopeful person, Don? And if so, where do you put your hope in? I am are, are you hoping for the quenching water to come <laughs> as opposed Uh-oh. to the flooding water? Like, look, what, is, what is the water for Don Lemon? Well, I hope it's not as a Pisces. I like the water part. Yeah, of it,
2: there you go. But I'm hoping that the fire doesn't get as, I hope that this is like, that we can still camp it out.
1: Well, sometimes a fire, you know, allows new things to grow up out of, out of the
2: the ashes of that fire. Yes. Okay. I, I'm, yes. And I, I think that that's, I believe that we are in the last throes of white supremacy and that's why people are fighting so hard right now. And so that's why I'm hopeful because I think the demographics will soon take over that we're going to be a minority majority country soon and just the sheer numbers will help in some way to to correct the problem. But I also think that uh, I also believe I also know that the November election of 2020 gave me hope. That there were millions and millions of people who voted for the right thing, to voted to um, the way that leads us to a more perfect union, rather than taking us backwards to a time when marginalized people, people of color, women, did not have um, equal rights. So that gives me hope. I know that there were millions of people who, who voted to take us back, but there were more people who didn't. And so I have to be optimistic about it. Otherwise, I may as well just sleep all day and not wake up because i can't i can't live in a world i just cannot live in a world and believe that the bigots and the racists will take over i just can't so i have to be optimistic uh it's tough
1: cuz yeah that's a, some politics in there too but do you think there are bigger numbers of the people doing the right thing than the people who want to hold on or do you think it's a do you think it's a fair fight right now do you think it's <laughs> not even
2: <laughs> i think the people who who want to go backwards. I think they're more cunning. I think they're oh, I think that they are um, because I think we're in the last vestiges of racism. I think they're going to fight harder to keep it. Who wants to give up power? People don't want to give up power. Just think about if you it's the whole thing again, as I've been telling you, it's people who are living in a lie. So this whole this whole thing about what America is and how America started and that we're the shining city on a hill, a lot of that was a lie. And people believe it, just as they believe the big lie about the election. So if you actually think it's true, if you really think about it, if you think it's true and it's not, then you can understand why people say, we have to go and do the right thing and overturn the election because it was fraudulent, even though it wasn't. So, if you actually believe the lies that are told to you in history about what America was, um, and then you would believe that America was meant for mostly white people. And it's supposed to look like it was made in the image of white people. And so you believe that you should have the preeminent voice as a white person. And so you can understand why some people believe that lie and they act upon that lie. And that's why I say we have to start at the beginning with the truth, and then people won't be acting and living on lies.
1: Now, that promise of America is a very powerful promise, and it has come true for many people, and you're right. It hasn't come true for a large segment, but can that promise be conferred upon Black Americans as opposed to, do we need to break up and have a different covenant You know that is Promised by the idea of America, because the ideas of America, I believe, are very strong, solid, and very optimistic ideas. It's kind of it has it has set this country apart. Those ideas,
2: yes, but those mm-hmm. ideas aren't all based in
1: fact, right? But I'm saying, but ideas don't have to be based in fact. They're they're there to give people hope or whatever or direction or or that like survival. <laughs> no, c- completely, they don't have to be based in fact. Fact, right? You know, they they're, they're not proving something they're creating you know something really and i'm saying can those same ideas of america be conferred upon a new generation of black people can are will they be able to take and not just black people you know we're in an, an intersectional kind of area in our country right now too you know can, yeah, can is there let me put it like this is there future for the american idea is there a future for that
2: Absolutely. Listen, okay. I believe in the American idea. But I again, yeah. I also believe in truth. I just think that it's hard for, um, for me, it's like a mathematical problem. You get one portion of it wrong, you may get close to the answer, but it's not the answer. Or you get one part of it wrong, and then you, the whole thing is messed up, because you just got that one part wrong. Um, and but as far as our history, there were a lot, there were a number of different parts that are wrong. That are just left out. You can't leave out parts of the mathematical equation. I know it's you know life isn't that you know it's not one plus one equals two, but I I I do think that if people operate in reality and truth about what this country is, and that a lot of it was BS, and there are great things about the ideals um, that young people can take and even older people can take and and a more perfect union, or you know the America that it's supposed to be. But I think that all has to start with the truth.
1: I agree. And it's funny when you're saying that about, right, uh, this is just a political statement. <laughs> I always say liberals like to be right and conservatives like to win. Like that's the difference <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that points out a, the
2: difference. This is this is, a, this is uh, Baldwin from The Fire Next Time. He says, Great. how can one respect, let alone adopt the values of people who do not on any level whatever live the way they say they do or the way they say they should.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you something. James Baldwin is so relevant now in so many different ways. And Don, thanks so much for spending time with me. You guys, this is the fire. It not only evokes the spirit of Baldwin. I mean, Don really goes in there. Like I said, on a personal level. Were you surprised? Well, I didn't know the poet Don Lemon was coming out, you know, giving us uh, this, uh, elegeic prose in the beginning of the book. <laughs> Can I
2: tell you something? The, the experience mm-hmm. that I had, I find that sometimes, not sometimes, I've always known this, but even more so, is that because I talk so much, I just kind of talk every day for a living, right? Talking, talking, talking. When you actually sit down and write it, I feel more, much more eloquent in my writing because I have more time to think about it and research and whatever than I do than just like off of the cup. Um, and, you know, I had, I thought my strong suit, my strong suit was always writing as I was going through, through school, even as a, like a young, you know, when I first started to read and write, my strong suit was always writing. But now I've sort of relied upon just the talking aspect of my personality to be able to, you know, to make a living. And I found that sitting down writing that my thoughts and um, how I felt about life is much more impactful than just talking shit all day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There you go. I'm glad you said it. Don Lemon, this is a fire, you guys. What I say to my friends about racism
2: <laughs> Larry thank you so much thank you thanks. for the conversation I hope you, I didn't get myself in trouble in this no
1: not at all I wish you the best of luck with the book and I'm glad to see it's doing well congratulations thank my you, Larry friend. you as well hey Larry I'm sorry about your brother you know I lost thank my you, Don. Right about it in the book so yeah I know You and I, the way you write about losing a sibling is very very touching to too you know? uh, thanks Dan take care